You're listening to the Inglewood College Podcast. Inglewood College is a ministry of Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. We believe that just because this season is temporary doesn't mean it can't be deeply transformative. Love God. Love people. Serve the world. Tonight we're going to continue our series in uh, John, the end of of the book of John, in a series we're calling The Time Is Now. We're calling it the time is now again because we are, we kind of hit the very uh, beginning of this, the beginning of the end, more or less, of the story that John unfolds for us of what happened with Jesus. And so, started in John 13, and we we walked through uh, that night where Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and then you know that was Thursday evening, and then he talks to his disciples for a little bit. He prays over them. That's what we talked about last time, and then they're going to go out uh, to this garden. And so tonight, uh, 18 and 19 is what we're going to cover uh, in jo- chapter, John chapter 18 and 19. So I know we just came out of Easter, where we heard a whole lot about Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, so it might seem like this message would have fit better last week, uh, before that. And you may be like, hey, I've heard enough of this, but uh, you haven't. So there is a, there's never a bad time to talk about what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection. So... Uh, this week, as we look at his arrest, trial, and death, we're going to see a few things, and next week we're going to talk about the resurrection. Specifically tonight, I want us to consider what it is that Jesus accomplished. Okay, one of my favorite verses from this passage is John nineteen thirty, where Jesus says, it is finished. What is finished? And then we're also going to talk about how other people around Jesus dealt with him that night and, uh, and that day, and why. Potentially, And I think we're going to see some things along the way that will either convict or encourage us. Maybe we'll do a little bit of both, uh, which, is, which is maybe the goal. I don't know. We're going to leave that up to the Lord. Uh, so what we're going to do, we're going to read John 18, 1 through 11, and then skip all the way over to John 19, uh, 17 through 30. So just a little heads up. So John 18, starting verse 1, going through 11, says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the, book, the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Jesus, who betray- Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Who do you, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to, this was to, to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants uh, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And then we'll skip over to chapter 19, starting in verse, actually the very end of verse 16. We'll be reading through verse 30. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. 
So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. In John 19, verse 23 and 24, where the soldiers are dividing up his clothes and casting lots. You know, this is kind of out of Jesus' hands. It doesn't look like he's the one that's fulfilling the scriptures. But through the things that are happening to him, he is fulfilling the scriptures and fulfilling the will of the Father. You know, it's incredible to see God work out fulfilling prophecy through people who are crucifying Jesus. God is accomplishing the things that he uh, foretold he was going to do in this situation. And then in verse 28 of chapter 19, it seems that Jesus is intentionally fulfilling Scripture when he says, you know, verse 28, in my, in my translation says, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. So you almost see him intentionally fulfilling something said in Psalm 69. He's like, hey, I'm at the very end. I've accomplished all these things. One last thing. I'm going to accomplish this by saying, I thirst. And so they offer him this, this sour wine. And then in verse 36 and 37, again, this is kind of out of Jesus' hands. This is after they've crucified him. After he is already dead on the cross. In verse 36 and 37, we see how uh, these things took place in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. And another scripture that says, they'll look on him whom they have pierced. So even in the moments after Jesus' after death, the details of his death are fulfilling scripture. Jesus is coming, he's saying, I have gone all the way. I have accomplished the full will of the Father for me to do here. And all of this is communicating that everything is going according to plan. I think for us, and probably some, if we were some of these disciples, and maybe like his mom, or his aunt, or one of these other people who is standing on and looking, they're like, how could this possibly be good? How could this possibly be God's plan? How could this, I, I thought Jesus was God. I thought that Jesus was God. He was saying all these things. How is it that he could possibly be up there on the cross right now dying? And really, though, what's happening is everything is going according to plan. You know, it leads us to a place like Acts 2, 22 through 23, where Peter is preaching, and he says, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection, and after the Holy Spirit has come, and he is proclaiming this to all these people who are listening. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What he's saying is, you are guilty, you men of Israel. You delivered over Jesus to be crucified by the hands of lawless men. You gave him to the Romans to crucify. But he said this was by the definite plan of God. So you have two things happening here. There's God sovereignly working and also human responsibility happening at the same time. If you're ever in a predestination debate, here we go. Just go straight to this verse, Acts 2, 22 and 23, where you see God's definite plan working out and humans uh, being responsible for their sin. And so it's an amazing thing that we need to understand this. This was always the way that God was going to reconcile us to himself. Always the way that God was going to give us eternal life. Jesus laid out this purpose himself early on, earlier on in John's gospel. So John 3, 
16 through 18. 16, you might be fairly familiar with. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have ever, everlasting life. That's the way I, I remember it. Uh, it's my translation says eternal life. And so we know that verse, and we love that verse. Oh, man, God sent his son to the world so that we might, we might be saved. That's awesome. I love that. I love that he, he came into the world so that we might be saved. We don't, we don't realize that, you know, sometimes when we talk about the verse, we're not thinking about the fact of how we're going to be saved. He didn't send his son just into the world to be like, hey, it's good news. Everybody, come on. Um, no, it's like, come through me dying on the cross for you. And he's going to lay it out a little bit of this, and it's kind of almost hidden in, in the next few verses, but we're going to see it. It says in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that, through, in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What I want us to see here is that he gave his Son so that the world might be saved through him. Because if they don't come through him, then they stand condemned. If they don't come through Jesus, they stand condemned. But if they would believe in him, they would not be condemned. Why? How? Because he would stand condemned for them. When he says in verse 17 of John 3, for God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, he doesn't include this little detail right here, but implied in there is that they wouldn't be condemned, they would be saved through him because he'll be condemned on their behalf. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, pretty sure that's the, the right verse, he said, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in, whom, in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made the one who knew no sin to become sin for us, to stand condemned for us on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God. Because somebody is going to stand condemned for your sin. Reality. We all understand that when you do something wrong, there is punishment. There's some kind of consequence when you do something bad. Sometimes it seems like we get away with bad things, right? We do bad things, we do something that we know recognize as sin, doesn't seem like there's any consequences. We feel like, oh, I got away with that one. No, no sin has ever gotten away with. All sin deserves something. Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. So what your sin deserves, the consequence for sin every time, is death. For even one sin, you and I would deserve death. To stand condemned before God, and so somebody is going to stand condemned for your sin. Somebody is going to face that punishment of death. It's either going to be you or it's going to be Jesus. And this is what Jesus has accomplished. That he would die so that if your faith is in him, if your trust is in him to be your savior, you might be saved through him being condemned on your behalf rather than you having to stand condemned. Jesus would die so that we may have eternal life. Along those lines, not just eternal life. We, we think about eternal life. Oh, praise the Lord, he saved us so that we can go to heaven someday. But eternal life, as we've talked about before in here, is, is breaking into the now. Life changes now for us. It's not just a future reality, but we have a relationship with God right now that changes life for us right here. Also in John, John chapter 10, 10 and 11, Jesus says that the, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 
I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Even back in chapter 10, Jesus is talking about laying down his life alongside giving us abundant life. I'm going to lay down my life so that they can have eternal life. But not just eternal life, but life abundant. Even now. And this is what he accomplished when he says in John 19.30, everything that I came to do, I have finished. I have accomplished it. So the real life for us comes through real death and then real resurrection for him. So that in his life, coming back from the dead, being raised to life, we might have life. And we're going to talk about the resurrection and what that means for us next week. But let me, let me remind us of a couple things based on, on just this, what Jesus came, that he accomplished everything he came to do. We do not have to try to earn our way to God. We don't have to try to earn our way to God. And I think sometimes we realize that or recognize that intellectually, but don't live it out practically. We say, yes, I know it's by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves, any of our works that we may boast. I, I get it, okay? Scripturally, I believe that is true. We recognize it intellectually, but then we don't act on it. We keep feeling like we've got to earn God's favor or that we've got to do enough stuff to keep uh, you know, him from being disappointed in us. No. He didn't come so that we would be looking over our shoulder all the time and feeling like we're bearing the weight that he already bore for us. He came so we might have abundant life. I think it also tells us that we're not God's afterthought. It wasn't like God was up there when Adam and Eve sinned and was like, well, I guess I've got to figure out a different plan. And I, gotta, I guess I've got to figure out some way to make this right. No, when he started everything, he knew what was going on. And you and I, we're never an afterthought. He knew us before he created anything. And we have an opportunity to know him in our relationship with him through this Jesus who accomplished this. He accomplished everything God sent him to do. He gave up his spirit in John chapter 19, verse 30. Willingly laid down his life, certain that the Father would raise him up. And these are the greatest moments in all of history. All of human history hinges on this, these few days right here where Jesus dies and he's resurrected. And there are people around this situation that had no idea that they were involved in some of the biggest moments in all of history. Clueless to it. Didn't realize the magnitude of what they were beholding with Jesus. So that's the second point, is that it's possible to completely miss out on Jesus. It is possible to completely miss out on Jesus. There were people involved in this account who had no idea what they were missing. Judas. And all those people who came to arrest Jesus. Think about, it says at the beginning of chapter 18 that Judas knew the place they were going because he had been there with Jesus before. He had been to this place where Jesus was before and he knew that this was likely where he was going to end up that night with his disciples. And I think it tells us something that you can experience amazing places and the people of God without knowing God. You can have amazing experiences, things that feel like spiritual high moments. You can experience maybe being around the people of God and experiencing some of those things. Judas got to experience miracles from Jesus himself and yet still did not know God. They came out with weapons as if Jesus was going to get into a physical altercation with them. Hey, Jesus might start throwing hands and we're going to need to have what we need to take care of this. They bring out like a small army and they get up to Jesus, and Jesus is just like, 
Who do you seek? I know you're here for me. Like, just let's, let's do this, you know, kind of thing. And they come out, and, and you notice what, what happens here. He says, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says, I am he. You've got to understand something, though. The construction of that sentence, I am he, is actually only two words. It's the word for I and the word for am. So biblically speaking, I am is a name reserved for God. And when he says I am, yeah, you could, you could assume he's saying, okay, I, that's me. You're here, you're here for Jesus of Nazareth, that's me. But instead he says it this way, I am. And he says it again in verse 8. And when he says I am, they fall back to the ground. And when I read this, I'm like, oh, did Jesus like overcome him with his glory? Did, did they notice now suddenly that he was God? You know, and that's why they fell down. Kind of like the people in the Old Testament when they see the, the presence of God and they experience his holiness, they like fall down to the ground because his holiness was so revealed. I don't know. That's the way I want to read it. But I'm really, not, I'm really not sure because they went on to arrest him after that. I think maybe what's happening is that they're offended at his claims to be God. So offended that they fall back. Like, whoa. Like, I, not as if he hasn't already claimed to be God. But he's claiming here in and they're going to use this later as a reasoning for wanting to kill him, that he claimed to be God. So they're falling back, you know, and, and they're, they're looking and potentially just upset at the fact that he claimed to be God. But the thing is, he really was. This is really God, and they're really in his presence. And they're falling back because potentially they're mad that he claimed to be God. And they're just missing it. This is God in the flesh. He healed an ear that was cut off right there in front of him. And they still are going to arrest this guy. And they couldn't see it. Judas couldn't see it. But not only them, you know, the religious leaders, they kind of had it out for Jesus for a while. He called them out early and often because he would, you know, confound them when they asked them hard questions. He would call them out about specific things like your religious leaders say this, whatever, and, or, you know, you, whatever this, and I'm reinterpreting the law kind of thing. And they got mad, but a lot of things they didn't like Jesus and you can see where this kind of came to the point of no return for the religious leaders. I, I failed to get this scripture on the screens. So if you want to turn with me, you can, or you can just listen. John chapter 11, going through verses 45 through 53. Okay, this is leading up to, this is pretty close to the events that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. It's right after he heals or, or brings Lazarus back from the dead. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, starting at verse 45 in chapter 11, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God that are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Notice the things that they're upset about. Everybody's going to believe him. They're going to go out to him. They're going to follow him. And then the Romans are going to come in. They're going to take our place away from us. We're going to lose our position and our status and the status quo of the way things are. It's going to fall apart if we let people go after this Jesus. And I think that there's a mixture of things going on. Oh, jealousy. There's pride. I think there's a 
a sense of power and control that they had over religious things, and they didn't want him going away. They liked the way that things were before Jesus. He was an interruption to their lives. We need to be careful that we're not exactly like them. In the sense that we liked how things were before Jesus started messing with stuff in our lives. Before he started being the authoritative ruler and king over our lives. The Lord for us. We, we liked having a sense of our own control. And, and we're kind of jealous at times of, of God and, and giving him control of our lives. And him getting to dictate how things are going to go or, or how we ought to live. And I think we could be just like them, that we don't like the interruption that Jesus is bringing into the situation, and so we're, we stand offish to him. We'd rather just get rid of this altogether and not have to deal with it anymore. We need to be careful that we don't end up where they were. They went to great lengths to exterminate the problem as they saw it. I mean, just think about this. They paid Judas to find out where they could, they could capture him. They went out at night to arrest him. They were on limited time because they, if they were going to get this done... Before the Sabbath, they were going to have to arrest him, send him through trial, figure out if they can get him executed, get him executed, you know, get him killed before sundown, so they get him off the cross so they wouldn't be working on the Sabbath. So they're on limited time here. They're like, okay, we know where Jesus is. We've got him cornered. We're going to get this done, and we've got to get him convicted and, and over with. And so they rushed his trial. They didn't have adequate witnesses. They went against their own law and all these things, and they were concerned about entering the governor's headquarters in chapter 18. Chapter 18, 28, they go to Pilate, and they don't want to enter the governor's headquarters because they don't want to become unclean for Passover. And yet they're breaking a law all along the way, and then they weren't concerned about saying to Pilate in chapter 19, verse 15, that they had no king but Caesar, which went directly against the fact that God was to be king over his people. So they don't want to be unclean for the Passover, but they're willing to break the law in all these other respects. And what you see is they were not concerned with honoring God. They were concerned about their own reputation, their own position, and their own power. These people, the religious leaders, were not concerned about honoring God. They were concerned with themselves. And before we hate on them for their unbelief, I think we ought to check ourselves and make sure that that same attitude and same heart is not in us. And then not only them, but Pilate. He didn't know when he woke up that morning what he was going to get into. You know, can you imagine Pilate waking up and suddenly there's people showing up at your door like, hey, we got this guy, we'd like to kill him. Um, we're not really into him. Can, we, can you just make sure that you, you try him real quick? We have some stuff, some charges to bring against him. And, and, and here's, you know, the kind of situation that he's walking into. We're going to read this. This is 18, 28 through 38. Okay, so here's what's going on, the kind of beginning of, of the circumstances. It says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or, do others say this, or did others say this to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have, I, what have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. 
that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And so we read those other couple verses earlier. But you see this, Jesus, the king of kings, stands before Pilate, admitting that he is the king of an otherworldly kingdom, a kingdom that supersedes this world, that goes beyond all these things, one that's characterized by truth that Jesus has come to bear witness to. And Pilate's response is to try to dismiss it. What is truth? Walk him back out, tell the people I have nothing against him. I got no reason to try this guy. I have no reason to crucify him or, or to, to deal with it at all. He didn't want to deal with it. And they keep pressing, and later he presses against Jesus again, only to have Jesus tell him that his authority is derived from God in chapter 19, verse 11. And I genuinely think Pilate just doesn't know what to do with Jesus. And then the situation takes a turn for him. So Pilate doesn't want to deal with this. He's trying to, trying to not have to deal with this all, at all. He's trying to put it back on the Jews. And then in verse 12 of chapter 19, it says, you know, and going through verse 16, it says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief answered, chiefs answered, chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Paul, or I mean, Pilate was worried that something was going to come back on him from this. Suddenly, maybe a revolt was going to come back on his head. There's speculation, actually, that maybe Pilate had been complained about before to Caesar. And I think history actually tells us that Pilate wasn't around for much longer after this. And so he's worried this is going to come back on him. He didn't want to do anything at all with Jesus. He didn't want anything to do with him, but he wasn't going to let this come back on him because he was afraid of Caesar. He was afraid of what might happen to him. He feared what might come to him if he didn't just go along with it, just get rid of Jesus. To put Jesus away. And I got to think, like, how often are we Pilate where we just rather not deal with it right now? I want nothing to do with this, but, but somehow this must be dealt with. So either we're going to bow down to him as God or we're going to try to put him away. You know, either we're going to live out this faith or we're going to be like, you know what, I can't let this whole faith thing mess stuff up for me. Because I've got a way of, of, things, of how I think, want things to go, and I'm afraid of how this might mess it up. And I'm afraid of how others might respond if I admit that I really believe in this Jesus or that I admit that I'm really one of his followers. And that leads us to Peter, who really was one of his followers, and yet denied him three times that night. Peter, one of the disciples, like Judas, but Peter was part of the inner three the closest three to Jesus. He saw the transfiguration and all, all of Jesus' glory. He was one of the three that, that were brought further along in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with Jesus that night. Peter was saying that he would, he would die with Jesus. You know, he, he would, he's not going to allow anything to happen to Jesus. Okay, and he's willing to actually cut off the servant's ear that night. You know, when they came for Jesus, Peter was ready to defend Jesus with the sword. But when a servant girl asked him if he was a follower of Jesus, he was worried about what might happen to him. Think about that. A small army comes up. I'm pulling out the sword. I'm going to defend Jesus to the death. You know, we're going to, I'm going to kill for Jesus. 
but I won't die for him. That's an interesting thing. I, I read this quote this week, and I think this is so insightful. It says, on the night of Jesus' arrest, Peter was willing to kill for Christ, but not to die for him. And the lesson, there's a type of counterfeit faithfulness that's willing to kill for Christ, but not willing to die for him. Peter willing to draw the sword to do something like that, but not willing to admit to a servant girl, and then two more times that morning, that yes, he was a follower of Jesus, because he was afraid of what might happen to him. What? How do those two things line up? But the thing is, is not this us sometimes? What might drive counterfeit faithfulness in us? Is it fear of man? Of what might happen to us? Is it a fear of misunderstanding? Uh, or, or do we have a misunderstanding of what it means to belong to Jesus' kingdom? Sometimes we're willing to, do, to go do things. You know, sometimes we're willing to, to do the Lord's work until it becomes sacrificial for us. I don't want to have to give up anything. I'm willing to go do these things. Sure, I'll go do some of this stuff, but I don't want to, until it starts becoming sacrificial for me, it might mean my own sacrifice, my own death. You know, the good news is that even though Peter denied Jesus three times, he was restored later. Jesus intentionally reconciled with him. We're going to read about that in John chapter 21. And we're going to see how after he restores him and reconciles with him, Peter's used in fearless ways. You know, he wasn't afraid after this to, to admit that he was a follower of Jesus. Actually, if you go read Acts 2 through 5, you're going to see how God used him in some bold ways not long after this. But we know what happened to Judas. The officers, religious leaders, we don't know exactly what happened with them. We don't know about Pilate. Some of them could have come to faith after the resurrection. Who knows? I'm not sure. Sometimes I feel sympathetic toward them. Even this week when I was studying and reading about Pilate, I was like, man, I kind of feel for this guy. He was in a hard spot, you know? And I want to be sympathetic to him because I'm like, oh, he didn't, he didn't quite understand exactly what was going on. The thing is, I think I want to be sympathetic with him because even though I do know what's going on and I have the fuller picture, I still at times cower to the fear of man. And I want to sympathize with him because I still struggle at times to stand firmly on the finished work of Christ for me. And I think I'm probably not alone in that even though I can see beyond this moment in a way that they couldn't. And if you're like me and you can see yourself in the shoes of these people at times, I want to tell you that we have an amazing privilege of walking in grace because of the finished work of Christ. We have an amazing privilege of having access to God through the finished work of Jesus. And we have the hope of being able to do that because Jesus is alive. This wasn't the end of the story. We're going to get into resurrection. We just had a resurrection with Easter. We're going to get into it again next week. But man, because of the finished work of Jesus and because of what he has done in sending his spirit and sending his word to us, we can walk in new life with him. Even though we struggle at times to stand firmly on his finished work. 